Let's open up to Titus 1, all right? Titus 1, Titus chapter 1, all right? Titus chapter 1. All the T's are together, right? So Thessalonians, Timothy, Titus, they're all together. Uh, Titus is your last T, all right? So I made one typo on our sheet. Three chapters, 46 verses, 896 words. I wrote verses again, sorry. Shouldn't be doing so much multitasking, but it's 896 words. If you look at Titus 1.1, the author's clearly Titus. Says it right there, right? Um, Paul, (laughs) the first word, Paul. Um, There's one here too, Matt, if you want a table, there's a table. Mm Mm-hmm. Good, somebody's got to do it. All right, so um, it's, it's clear. If you look at verse 4, it says it's to Titus. So Titus is a convert of Paul because he calls him there my own son in the common faith. So he was a convert of Paul. And if you hold your place in Titus and flip over to Galatians, um, <clears throat> Galatians chapter 2, Galatians 2, verse number 1. It looks like he was an early convert uh, because if you look at 2.1, then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. So Paul took Titus to Jerusalem 17 years after his conversion when he went up that time. So it looks like Titus was maybe early in his ministry that he had brought him to Christ. Verse 3, but neither Titus who was with me being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised. Now, Timothy is his other protege. Timothy's half Jewish. Titus is a full-blood Gentile. So Titus is all Gentile. So uh, Titus was probably older and stronger than Timothy, maybe mentally and even emotionally, because you don't see Paul really worrying about him. With Timothy, it's like, I'm mindful of thy tears. I I understand you're a little scared. Like, there's, there's a lot of Paul having some, you know, care over Timothy. It looks like Timothy was a little timid and weak. Titus, you don't really see any of that. looks like Titus was able to stand on his own two feet. And um, Titus is written about the same time as 1 Timothy. So if you're looking for some historical uh, context there. Let's go to, uh, go back to Titus 1. Just some more introduction here. Titus 1. Titus 1. If you look at verse 12, the place where Titus is ministering in verse 12 says is Crete, that island off the coast of Greece. And it says, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans, the people from Crete, are always liars, always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So Paul doesn't give the Cretans very good character. And um, they were conquered by Rome. And before Rome came in and took them over, Crete was given to democratic government. You know, government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Now with that in mind, look at Titus 3. Look what he tells them in Titus 3. They're going to get conquered by the Romans and get taken over by the Romans. Uh, And in Titus 3 verse 1 it says, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Paul gives them potentially unwelcome instructions. 
culturally they had a heritage of ruling themselves, right? Democratic rule, and now they get conquered by Rome as part of the empire's expansion. And Paul says, be subject to your leaders. That's very contrary to their culture, but that's the Bible way, Romans 13. Um, That's pretty good preaching for we Americans, right? Because we have this heritage of rugged individualism, which... I'll be honest with you, I like that. I like freedom. I like the Bill of Rights. I like the government to leave me alone. I'll be very honest with you. Uh, uh, I believe, like Ronald Reagan was right, government is the disease. Uh, You know, everything they touch, they tend to destroy and ruin. So let me not get on that soapbox. But here it says, be be, be subject, be obey magistrates. I mean, until they're telling you, until they're telling you to disobey God, you're supposed to Follow their rules, right? They're given to you for the punishment of evildoers. So that's, I know that's going over like a lead balloon right now to my, my uh, freedom-loving people, but that's just the truth here. Uh, and Paul seems to have had some kind of confidence in Titus. Uh, all throughout 2 Corinthians, you see Paul sent him to Corinth on a mission. So there's some kind of level of confidence he had in Titus to accomplish something. He was able to send him to Corinth and give him some reports back. And in Titus 1.5, he actually leaves him in Crete. Even though the guys aren't great people, he has such confidence in Titus. It says in Titus 1.5, For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. So, Paul ordains Titus to the ministry, and he says, I want you to go and and just get some other people in the ministry, ordain some other elders, and plant some other churches the same way I did this to you. So he's left Titus with some responsibility to set some things in order. Let's look at the key verses, 2-7, Titus 2-7. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. That's important. Look at Titus 2-8. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he does the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Titus 2.15, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So the key message we'll talk about at the end is God's ideal, God's order for the Christian church and the Christian worker. It's all about order. It's all about setting things in order. Um, so the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed as our pattern, right? Because when you follow the pattern, you maintain God's order. You do things God's way when you follow the patterns that he's given us. So the breakdown is really easy and very instructive. Chapter one, as you see on your sheet, he wants it to be an orderly church. The emphasis is on church order in chapter one. Verse five is the key verse there. Set in order the things that are wanting. God wants order in his church. Not rigid order, you know, one day the guys are like, the song leaders, we're going to do two songs, we're going to do four songs, like, that's okay, right? We don't have to be so uh, prescriptive, one day I want to preach first, and have the guy sing second, that might blow all your minds, but that's okay. But order meaning the structure, the organization, the way God laid out leadership, he says, I want there to be some order, do all things decently and in order. Uh, And if you look at, uh, go to chapter two, chapter two is a sound church, a healthy church, a complete church, 2-1. Notice in 2-1, he talks about sound doctrine. Notice in 2-2, he talks about sound in faith. Notice in verse 7, he again mentions doctrine. Notice in verse number 10, he mentions uh, the doctrine of God. So the emphasis in chapter 2 is on doctrine, those things that we are supposed to know about the Lord. Then chapter 3 is a practical church. The emphasis is on works. 
What are you doing on earth, for heaven's sake? 3-1, good work. 3-8, good works. 3-14, good works. So the emphasis on work. So there's a whole message there in the way the chapters are laid out, which we'll get to at the end. So <clears throat> let's go back to Titus 1-7. <clears throat> and let's pull out some pictures and some key truths here from the book of Titus. Titus 1-7. And again, immediately Titus is directed to an elder in a church, but we don't have to limit it to just a deacon or a pastor. It's anybody that wants to serve God. This book is instructive for you. So don't count yourself out of Titus. There's a lot of good stuff for you. First thing is that if you're going to be any kind of quote-unquote man of God, if you're going to love God and serve God, number one, you have to become or be the steward of God, right? That's the first big thought I want to pull out of this in Titus 1.7. He says, for a bishop. Now here he's talking about a pastor directly. But what God is saying about a pastor, you take for yourself. I mean, Mark, you're a pastor in your house right now. Mary, you're a pastor in your house right now. Jim, you're a pastor in your house. Like, you know, guys, ladies, you might be a pastor over your children. Like, you're all doing this job of leadership. So he's saying if you want to be any kind of leader, you need to be a steward. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, the manager for God, a superintendent like those old-fashioned chamberlains who oversee the estate for the master. That's what a steward was. Now, here's what happens. And if you've been around any other more contemporary churches, the minute you say stewardship, they think it's going to be a lesson on money. Because stewardship is always about money. The Laodicean church makes stewardship, stewardship conferences, stewardship banquets. Everything is about money. It's not about money here. Because in Titus 1.7, look what it says. You're to be the steward of who? Of God. You're supposed to be looking out for God's stuff, not your stuff. right? What is the stuff God has given us? Well, let's go to 1 Peter. Let's look at some of the things God's given us that we're supposed to be watching over, taking care of, managing appropriately like a steward of God. 1 Peter 4.10. 1 Peter 4.10. All right? It says, As every man hath received the gift. Now you could make that being like a, like, a, like a servant of God has a gift for service, or we could spiritualize it as a Christian has the gift of salvation, however you want to take that. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You know we're supposed to know everything about God's grace? We're supposed to be watchkeepers over God's grace. You're supposed to know how people get saved by grace. You're supposed to know how you can come boldly onto the throne of grace. You're supposed to know all these things about grace. What does grace teach us? What does grace show us? Do you? Could you teach a lesson right now on the grace of God? Could you find me five verses about the grace of God if you had to? Could you explain what the grace of God? Do you know maybe the acronym, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense to help you expound on what grace is all about? You know, we say, I'm saved by grace. And someone says, what does that mean? Do you have a verse or a reference? You say, Pat, you're getting on us this early? Yeah, I'm getting on myself. Because we know so little about the Bible. You could tell me 10,000 things about your favorite sports team. You could tell me the spread on Sunday night. You could tell me about all the different lineups and different combinations of why the 49ers are going to go up against the... The Chiefs. I know it was the Chiefs. I was just seeing who would answer first. I knew it was going to be Chris. Right? But, you know, you know, all this stuff, you know. 
Um, who's going to spread this? Who's going to do that? How are we going to approach this? Are you going to bet against Superman? Do you bet against Michael Jordan, i.e. Patrick Mahomes? All this stuff. You hear all them chattering about it, and we all this stuff, the box score, the Monday morning quarterbacks, and God says, give me five verses on grace. And some of us would be like, I know the song, right? It's amazing. I heard it's amazing, Grace. We're supposed to be stewards of the manifold, the many ways God's grace works. We're supposed to be watching over that. How about this one? Go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm guilty too. You know, I could tell you about all this stuff too. I could tell you about the Knicks and I could tell you about, you know, college basketball because I've turned off the professional basketball for the next few months. Right? So I could tell you all this stuff, but do I know as much about grace? How about this? How about this? How about 1, Peter 4, 1 Corinthians 4.1? Let a man <clears throat> so account of us as of the ministers of Christ, and here's what the minister is supposed to be, and stewards of the mysteries of God, right, right. right? We should be able to make known God's mysteries. Can you? Right? You know, in the Bible, a mystery is not meant to be mysterious. It's not like, ooh, ooh, ooh. you know, it's not supposed to be like, that's the old religion, right? With the smoke and the bells and the weird languages and the funny talk and the strange dress. That was all mysterious, you know? Oh, all the chanting, that's mysterious. God's mysteries are not supposed to be spooky. They just meant that they're supposed to be disclosed, revealed, made known. We're supposed to be the ones that expound on and make known the mysteries of God because your lost friend at work isn't going to do it. You know, the person without the Bible is not going to do it. You're supposed to be following God. You're supposed to be a steward or a chamberlain over the mysteries of God. Are you able to expound them? Do you, don't answer out loud. Do you even know them? Right, if I said, talk to me about the mystery of godliness. How is it different than the mystery of iniquity? What about the mystery of the blindness of Israel? What about the mystery of our resurrection? The mystery of the gospel? The mystery of his will? The mystery of our catching away? All these, all these mysteries the Bible expounds upon. Do you know any of them? I mean, don't answer out loud, but we're supposed to be watching over them. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Because if we knew the mysteries, no heresy would ever get in this place. Amen. If you knew the mystery of Israel's temporary blindness, Romans 11, you would never fall victim to Calvinism's stupidity, replacement theology. You know, you know exactly what God is doing. You know exactly how Israel's been set aside and will eventually be restored. That's the first mystery he tells the church. Why? Because that's what the church has to get. Hey guys, you didn't replace Israel. You just, you just, you're the part of my plan now, but you didn't replace Israel, right? If you knew the mystery of godliness, think about how much you would be able to defend the deity of Christ against all the various cults and heretics that want to say that Jesus was just a prophet or Jesus was just a teacher or Jesus was just a good man. If you knew how, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. How much, you know, if you understood the mystery of iniquity, you wouldn't be worried about the boogeyman. Amen. You know exactly that God's working something out the way he says to work it out. If you knew the mystery of our change, 1 Corinthians 15, you say, wow, man, these bones, these bones, these dry bones, one day I'm going to put this body off and put on this new body. You might be able to encourage each other and not be full of despair. The mysteries are what we're supposed to be stewards over. Why? To keep the doctrine of this place pure Amen. and burning and shining. 1 Corinthians 2.4.2, 2, you say, oh, man, that sounds heavy, Pat. How am I gonna, what do I have to do? What class do I have to take? You know what you just got to be, 1 Corinthians 4.2. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. 
The only requirement for the steward is not your IQ, it's just your consistency. Faithful. Pastor Dean used to say this back in Staten Island. If you got yourself a notebook or a laptop and just came to every service and took notes, you probably have a seminary education at the end of a few years. We have other classes. We do classes. We have discipleship too. We've done uh, training classes on witnessing, on ministering to people, and we plug those things in. Maybe if the Lord tarries, we'll do an institute-level class. One day I've got some ideas, right? Uh, But you know what? God says if you just come to church and take notes and study your Bible, I mean, Danny knows he's shaking his head. You've heard Pastor Dean say that ad nauseum. You just pay attention and come to every service. Guess what? You'll be so far ahead of everybody else, you're just paying attention. And that you just got to be faithful. You know, a steward was the man on like a ship. Back in like, you know, the days of like big ships like Titanic. That's a bad example. But, you know, just those big ships that would go out and take people across the ocean. Now we got planes. When people travel by ship, you know, you'd find the steward and you'd entrust your valuables and your jewelry to the steward. He'd be watching over it, taking care of it. If I trust you with my diamonds, I just want you, I don't have any diamonds, by the way. But if I trust you with my diamonds, I just want you to be reliable. I just want you to be steadfast. You don't have to be the best looking, the smartest, the fastest. You just got to be dependable enough that if I give you my valuables, you're not going to lose them. You're not going to put them in the wrong hands. And listen, guys, the Lord has put you in trust with the gospel. Far greater riches than the fanciest rubies on the planet. If the Lord has put you in trust with the gospel, all you got to do is be faithful. All you got to do is show up. All you got to do is be consistent. Go to Luke chapter 12. Let me show you what he says about stewards here. All right. <clears throat> Luke 12, look at 42. Uh, 41, sorry. Uh, the Lord in Luke 12 is uh, talking about parables, and he's just expounded some parables to these people. And in Luke 12, 41, then Peter said unto him, Lord, speakest thou this parable unto us or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Right? Are you a faithful and wise steward who knows how to feed the household? You know how to take this book and break it apart and rightly divide it and say, here's what you need over here, and here's what the Jew needs over here, and here's what the guy in the Old Testament needed, and here's what they need in the future. Can you take the Word of God and meet it out and give, let's say, the body of Christ what they need from this book and be able to separate what's different for the Old Testament from this book? He says, God's like, I'm looking for somebody that I could trust with this meat that can kind of divvy it out the right way to the people in my house who can rightly divide, let's say, the word of truth. You know, and I'll just plug this in here. If you have any inkling to serve in any inclination and you can't rightly divide the book, I hate to say this to you the wrong way, but you got to get to the back of the line. And you got to get to the back of the line and learn how this book is put together before God's going to give you any level of authority where anybody might look to you for an answer. Because he's saying, I can't put you in any authority until you know how to divide the bread and portion out the meat. So that's what a steward's supposed to do. Verse 43. I mean, and I'll just, and you don't study the Bible so you get that promotion. You just study the Bible because you want to know how God thinks. And when God sees somebody that wants to know how I think, then maybe God will give you 
somebody underneath you, whether it's a wife or children or a Sunday school class that might look to you for an answer. But you don't study the Bible to get promoted. You study the Bible because you want to know God. And then when God sees a man that trembles at his word, he says, well, maybe this knucklehead over here, maybe I can let him teach somebody because he trembles at the book and he knows how to divide it. So go get him, son. Right? That's how God works. Uh, Luke 12, 43, he says, Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth, I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. <laughs> if you're faithful with the riches you'll be rewarded. If you're faithful with these riches, you'll be rewarded. You'll be ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ if you're faithful with the book that he gave you. So you've got to be a steward. Go back to Titus. That's the first big thought, Titus uh, 1. That makes sense? Amen. All right. hope that's a little challenging. It challenges me. I'm just yelling at myself. It's most of my day. Titus 1.9. He says of that steward... That man of that that servant of God, Titus 1:9, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. He's saying, Hey, I've given you my faithful word. Will you be faithful with this book? I've given you the faithful word. You've learned some things about it. Will you hold it fast? Will you let somebody take it away from you? Right? You ain't taking them, you're not taking my Bible from me. You come and try to take my Bible from me or somebody in here, I'm going to scratch you. Like, I'm going to take you out. Like, there's my flesh would love that fight. You know, if somebody came in here and tried to get one of our young guys or get one of our ladies and start pumping them full of bad doctrine, get out of the way because the Gatling gun is coming out. And I'm going to blast you with so many verses, I'll send you back to the Catholic Church. Like, I don't care. Like, I'm just, I just that's, that's, that strips my gears. And you should have a little of that. <laughs> you shouldn't want to see anybody come in here and turn somebody sideways, turn somebody to false doctrine. You could, the Bible says, David said, I hate every false way. Right. You're not supposed to love everything. <laughs> I don't love what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. I don't love what the Muslims teach. I don't hate the person. I'm gracious and kind and long-suffering, but hey, I'm not letting somebody steal my book. You're not coming with your Mickey Mouse Bible and stealing my book. You're not trying to convince me that that piece of trash is the Word of God. No, sir. I got my verses ticked off in my head. I got them written down in my Bible. And if you come ready to play, we're going to tangle because <laughs> I got them. I got, I got my special verses, and we'll see if you can handle them. But I'm not saying I'm anybody, but you've got to have a little of that. You've got to be prepared to hold it fast and be like, no way, you ain't, you're not taking my book. You're not taking my doctrine. Get, listen, the Lord promised to preserve his word. Right. Amen? Amen. Amen? The preservation of God's word hinges on God's faithfulness. Amen. The preservation of sound doctrine hinges on your faithfulness. Amen. God never promised to preserve the doctrine. He promised to preserve the word. He told you earnestly contend for the faith right. that was once delivered to the saints. I gave you the truth. It's been passed down from the apostles. Now, Hold on to it. That's a challenge to be a steward. Um, Titus 1.14, he says, Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. See, you got to give heed to them. you got to yield to them. you got to kind of turn over to them. Don't do that, he's saying. The church age may end in apostasy. We know it does, but you don't have to fall away. You don't have to be in that number. You could be a burning and a shining light. You don't have to give heed, even though other people are giving heed. You don't have to. I mean, if chapter 1 is all about being an ordered church, how can you have an orderly church that makes a mess of the Bible? I mean, the Bible tells you to rightly divide the word of truth. 
right, to lay things out in the Bible the right way. How could the church ever be orderly if we don't know how this book is put together? Right. And I'm not saying anybody has all the answers. God knows we don't have all the answers. Josh and I are talking about stuff. He asks me questions. I smile and say, I don't know. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff we don't know. That's okay. But there's some stuff that we do know. Amen. Some things have been revealed. Amen. And unto those things that have been revealed, those things are ours. The secret things belong unto God. But those things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children. Right? So there's some things that we do know for sure. I know salvation is by grace through faith. Amen. You ain't talking me out of that. I know Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. You ain't tricking me out of that. I know the rapture is coming before the tribulation to catch his bride away. You ain't getting me out of that. There's some things that are clear as the nose at the end of your face if you'd follow the word of God and find it out. So, whew, let me get off that box. Let me get to the next chapter. All right? Chapter 2, next big thought. <clears throat> First thought was about the steward of God. Second thought is about how a sound church must have sound doctrine. And what that actually means will be interesting in a second. So let's look at Titus 2.1. A sound church can only come from sound doctrine. Healthy, not defective. Um, look at Titus 2.1. But speak thou the things which become or fit or suit or go along with sound doctrine. Four times a pastor is admonished about sound, healthy doctrine. Right? Look at 1 Timothy 1. I'll show you some of these. <clears throat> 1 Timothy 1. Oh, it's all this doctrine. You guys are always talking about doctrine. That's what the Bible's about. Right. <laughs> it's like, you know... It's like going to a basketball court. All you guys want to do is dribble. Like, what are you? That's what you do when you play basketball. You dribble. That's how you move the ball. You dribble, you pass. All right? We're not playing rugby and running around with it. You dribble and you pass. Well, some of you learned something right now. You're like, oh, that's why they're always doing this when I do that. All right? But listen, the Bible is given for doctrine. So the main reason is doctrine. So we know some things about God. And in Titus, uh, 1 Timothy 1.9, it says... Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men-stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So first thing I see is that sound doctrine is a quality of the unrighteous. People that are wrong with God are wrong with the book. You can, write, you can make note of that. That's, that's true. Right? I just love God. I'm just a spiritual person, but I just don't think Jesus was the Son of God. You got bad doctrine, you got a bad relationship with the Bible. Right? Something's wrong when you got the wrong doctrine. Something's wrong with you. Oh, they're a good brother. They just got bad doctrine. Somewhere that bad doctrine, like leaven, is going to leaven the whole lump. He's saying right there that, sound, that, that anything contrary to sound doctrine is associated with an unrighteous person. Uh, it makes you go the wrong way. Go to 2 Timothy 4. Verse 3. 2 Timothy 4, 3. Here's the second time he mentions sound doctrine. He says, The time will come when they... God's people will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Second thing I see about sound doctrine is that God's people eventually won't want it. Hello, 2024. <laughs> Welcome to, to the show. You're the next contestant on Laodicean Church, right? That's where we are right now. 
If I walked into a mega church and said, oh, we're just going to talk about the difference between salvation in the Old Testament and salvation in the New Testament, they'd run me out of there before you could say Rick Warren. Right? Forget about it. They wouldn't want anything to do with that. They just share with me. Share something with me about my feelings and my marriage and my, my way and my empathy and my anxiety. I mean, those things are byproducts of Bible teaching. But that can't be the focus all the time. It can't all be about you. It's got to be about God. We've got to learn about God first, and then that stuff helps us. But the contemporary church has flipped it all around. They want, they want all the practical stuff. Give me the relationship stuff. Give me the way that I can navigate this crazy world. How do you get that if you don't know what God's about? First, you've got to understand what God's about, and then you start to get affected by who God is. You learn about God, and it shapes who you are. Right. And there would come a day when there'd be conferences, seminars, books, but doctrine? Ugh. Perish the thought. Go to Titus 1.9. Next time doctrine's mentioned is in Titus 1.9. He says that at the end of the verse, that he may able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. There is a need for sound doctrine to handle opposition, to handle the deniers. You know, I, I, you know, Josh is talking about this lady that he's ministering to at work, this woman, Nicole, that got saved, and, and, and the mom is a pretty, right, pretty avowed Jehovah's Witness. What do you do with that, right? You're not going to go in there and fight about you're wrong, I'm right. No, you have to teach that lady about the deity of Christ, who Jesus Christ is, that he's God, that he's God manifest in the flesh. Because I'm sure that mom, that's where she's going to go. Oh, no, Jesus wasn't God. Jesus was a lesser God. Like, that's their bread and butter. So how do you combat that? We just give our opinions? No. Book, chapter, and verse. Doctrine. We're going to give them doctrine to help substantiate that. If you're on the street one day and you're dealing with somebody that, you know, doesn't think salvation is by grace, what are you going to do? Just fight about it? Just say, well, that's what I learned. No. Doctrine is what's going to convince the gainsayer. Right. It's how you're going to convince or at least shut the mouth of the one that denies the doctrines of this book. You better have some doctrine to answer them. And Titus 2.1, he says this. <clears throat> Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Sound doctrine should guide everything we talk about. Right. That if we profess that Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh, then you better have some humility that backs you to, to go along with that. If you know how humble God was to come down in a man, as a man, shouldn't you then have some humility when you deal with people? Amen. Right? I mean, it's, if God, if the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, 2 Peter, if God was long-suffering with you, shouldn't you forbear one another in love? Amen. Right? We should speak the things which become or go along with sound doctrine. You know, in Acts chapter 27, which is a very telling account of Paul on a ship headed for Rome, built in Laodicea, being tossed about with these winds from the east, which is a picture of the church using Laodicean Bibles, or I should say Alexandrian Bibles, like that was an Alexandrian ship, forgive me, I said that wrong, an Alexandrian ship on its way to Rome, tossed about with every wind of doctrine. That's where the church is. You know what they tell them to do so they don't crash on the rocks? Cast four anchors. Drop some anchors so you can hold fast. And four times it mentions four anchors. And in these last days, the church needs sound doctrine. It appears four times. That's, those are the anchors to survive the storm. Sound doctrine. So Titus 2, if you want to read with me, I'm not going to read it out loud, but if you look at Titus 2, verses 2 to 6, what I want you to notice, which is very interesting, notice how the sound doctrine is connected to character. It's connected to behavior. 
See that? And he covers everybody. Old men, old women, young men, young women. Titus 2.2, he says, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. He says, hey guys, hey older guys, let your experience of walking with God humble you, temper you, sober you, control you, you know, just rein you in. You know, if you've walked with God at all, he's saying you should be the guys that have some type of gravity about this thing, some seriousness, some cool head about some things. Then he says in Titus 2.3, he says that the, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. He says right there, hey, ladies, let your experience make you a good example. These young ladies are looking up to you. Be a good example. And for the young women, he says those things. He talks about four and five. Teach, be sober, love their children, got, uh, keep, be keepers at home. He tells them, hey, young ladies, you're a type of the Holy Spirit of God. What a privilege, what an honor. He says in verse 5, ladies, <coughs> learn how to be keepers at home. Does that mean you have to be a doll in a house? No. You know, Henrik Ibsen wrote this play, you know, many, many years ago called A Doll's House about how women are just trapped in their house, like a doll trapped in the house, and it's a, you know, supposed to be a, 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 a critique of the misogynism and the patriarchy and all that gas and all that stuff, but... No Bible makes the woman out to be a wallflower, or just a doll in a house that's just trapped there while the husband goes and lives his life. That's not what the Bible's saying. He tells you in 1 Timothy, a young woman is to guide the house. You say, oh, uh, you think that's not a privilege? Right. You know the strength of a church is its families? Yeah. The strength of a church is not how many people we can get in on a Sunday. It's the families that are built as those pillars and those towers in this place. And God has entrusted you to be that keeper and that watcher and that guide of that unit that is so fundamental to... It's a high honor. You think Susanna Wesley, who raised Charles and John Wesley, doesn't have an amazing reward? She produced two men that helped turn the world upside down and bring about the Great Awakening and write some of the most beloved hymns in our hymnal? And what was she? She was, hey, I don't know anything she ever said. I see what she produced. Right. And you could read about her. She has stuff written about her. But the fruit of her labor is what we really look at. And what was she? Just a faithful lady who just tried to guide her house, try to lead her house, try to help her house out. And like the Holy Spirit guides the church, the young woman guides the house. And like the Holy Spirit is meek and quiet, notice how it says the woman is to be discreet and chaste, just under control, not given to emotional overload, not given to loudness, not given to gossip, just kind of just following like the Holy Spirit. Listen, 1 Peter 3, 4 speaks about a woman adorning herself. And it says, you know what she says? She should have a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price, right? My pastor Dean, Mrs. Dean, right. is one of the quietest ladies we know. Right. I know. But when she opens her mouth, I take notes, <laughs> right? She doesn't waste a syllable. 
She's, I don't see her as a wallflower or a second-class citizen. I just see, a, I see the Holy Spirit right there. I see, I see a godly woman right there. Amen. Makes right. me like tremble, makes me, makes me think twice. You know what the Bible, that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is meek and quiet, like a godly woman's meek and quiet. But you know what it says of the other type of woman? The harlot, the Jezebel, who pictures that other spirit that's in the world. You know what it says of her in Proverbs 7:11? I want a Slurpee. You know what it says in Proverbs 7, 11 about her? It says, she is loud and stubborn. She's bawdy, loud, obnoxious, odious. She wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wickedness. Something about a bawdy, obnoxious, loud-mouthed woman makes me want to vomit. And it's just like, just, ugh. I'm not saying you can't scream at a basketball game, but it's just like a loud attitude, like a loud countenance, just a, a bawdy, forthright, my daughter... Nobody, nobody's watching this. She played, she played Madawan High School, and that coach on the other side of that bench was loud and stubborn. I mean, if this goes over the airwaves and she watches it, God bless you. I love you. I hope you get saved. But, you know, I mean, it's just like, just you, the counting is just aggressive and yelling and loud and just, bleh, just like, just makes me nauseous, right? And God says that is the wrong type of spirit. That's, that's a very aggressive spirit. That's a spirit that doesn't want to be under any kind of authority, that doesn't want to follow any of God's order, that just wants what it wants, and kind of like Eve is willing to just, you know, get what she wants, whether her husband wants it or not. You know, she didn't say, honey, should we eat this? She said, she said hey, look at this. It's pretty good. You want to have some? She'd already taken a bite. Eve did. So that's a different kind of spirit. And in verse 5, notice what he says at the end of the verse, that the word of God be not blasphemed. This is not misogynism or barbaric philosophy. This is don't ruin God's picture and break the type, ladies, that you're supposed to be. Right? You remember what happened to Moses when he broke the type and smote the rock twice in anger? God said, you're not going to the promised land, Moses, because you broke a type. You didn't believe me and you broke a type. I don't want to break a type as a husband as a father, there's all these types. And ladies, you fulfill a great type of the Holy Spirit of God. He's saying, don't ruin the type. Because when you break the type, there's such consequences. There's, God says you're worse than an infidel sometimes when you don't do the right things to your own. And there's such consequences. And then he just, I can see that's going over real good. Go to verse 6. Um, <clears throat> verse 6, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. He says, hey, young men. Don't get carried away by youthful lusts. You know, that's what men are given to, right? Just, they want to go plant a flag somewhere. You know, they want to conquer a hill somewhere. They want to just, you know, you know, plunder something somewhere and just be like, whether it's, whether it's the weight rack at the gym or the flag in football, they just want to capture something and say, look what I've done. Yeah. You know, there's like two people watching and just like, congratulations. You know, but you know, guy digs a hole. He wants to bring his wife outside and say, look what I did. Look at that. Uh-huh. I dug that hole. You know, just that's what's in a guy. That's a good thing. That's okay. Just don't get overrun with those passions. Flee also youthful lusts. All right? Now, here's what I want you to think about. He says sound doctrine in, in verse 1, and he goes into all this stuff about their character, their behavior, and their order. Why does the Lord connect your character to being sound in your doctrine? You ever think about that? He doesn't talk about eschatology in here or the second coming of Christ, or right divisions, or the Jew-Gentile, the church of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of earth, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, nothing like that. He says, you should act right, talk right, live right, 
behave right. Why? Here's what I think. <clears throat> because if your doctrine doesn't match your deeds, there's something wrong with you. If you profess to know the right doctrine and you don't have the right attitudes, who's going to listen to you? Right? Who cares if you know about the deity of Christ if you have no humility, no grace, no compassion, no long-suffering, no condescending to men of low estate? Does that make sense? Yeah. Who, what good is your teaching on the judgment seat of Christ if you could tell me what the gold and the silver and the precious stones represent, if you could lay out the three-and-a-half-year tribulation and explain all the timing of it, great. But if you're a jerk to your family after you do that lesson, who's going to listen to you? <laughs> what would happen if I got off this platform and, you know, I, I stumble over, I trip over, you know, Deb's bag over here, and I, you get that stupid bag out of the way. What's the matter with you? you know, how, you going to remember my lesson? <laughs> No, I know what you remember. You remember kicking my butt out the door. It's what you should do after something like that. Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Your life should be in line with what your profession. Your church will never be sound if what you perform in your life contradicts what you profess with your lips. I profess to know God. I know all these things about the Bible, and I'm a jerk. And too many people, too many people in the King James camp are jerks. They are loud obnoxious jerks. They think because they have the right doctrine, it affords them the right to be misogynistic, to be racist, to be stupid, to be brash. That's not Bible. We should be the kindest, most long-suffering people that ever lived, the ones that know the truth. Doesn't we have to be mushy and weak and shangad, as my grandmother would say, like, a, like some bad pasta that you kept cooking too long? That's not what it's supposed to be. We can still be strong and resolute and confident in what we believe, but Moses was the meekest man that ever lived. When he lost his meekness, he lost his inheritance. He lost that promised land when he lost that self-control. So I guess a lot of people, I, I've told this story before. Well, after 9-11, we went street preaching a lot. Uh, a lot of groups wanted to come to Staten Island and come street preaching because they wanted to come see the big city and, and witness to the big city. So Pastor Mike was gracious. We were going out every day and going to different places. You know what a lot of them were? A lot of them were jerks. They were just straight-up jerks. They had an ax to grind. They wanted to preach to Sodom and Gomorrah. They wanted to scream at the big city, a city that was hurting, a city that had just lost thousands of people. People had lost coworkers. We had seen, I had watched with my own eyes, those planes hit the towers. I had walked through the, plot, through the cloud of smoke, you know what, and people were hurting, and then people get up there and start screaming on Wall Street, telling them God's judging you, but they had King James Bible. They had right doctrine. They could rightly divide premillennial, independent, fundamental, all that stuff but they had no compassion, no long-suffering. You know who listened to them? Nobody. You know what? Nobody. I'm on the street one day witnessing this guy, and I hear someone shouting down the street, and there's a guy in the middle of the street chasing these kids on a bike, telling them how Jesus is going to knock them out if they don't get saved. And, I, and the guy I'm walk, talking to says, is he with you? And I told the half-truth. I said, no, not really. <laughs> you know, not really. Because I was embarrassed to be associated with that. I've been, at the, I've been at the place where the guy's wearing the crazy shirts, you know, with just vicious sayings, you know, just going, we're going to go, you know, we're going to go to the pride parade and we're going to wear that T-shirt that says G-A-Y, got AIDS yet? I want no part of that. That, to me, is such the wrong spirit, and I'm not for those lifestyles. I don't think that sin is smiled on by God, but that's the wrong attitude to have. I don't care if you got a King James Bible. I don't care if you know the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. You think that's the Holy Spirit that told you to get up there and just uh, stick it to people like that? 
I don't know, man. Maybe I'm on a soapbox. Maybe I'm the only one that thinks that way. But there should be some compassion, right? I read about a Savior that wept over a city that was going to reject him. It said, oh, Israel, Israel, you know. So let's have a little compassion. And they'll never hear your message if they, that your actions speak so much louder than your words. So Titus 2 at the end here. Now, here's a great example. The coming of the Lord is a perfect example of how doctrine should change your life. And, then, and the chapter ends with the coming of the Lord. Verse 11. <clears throat> For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. What does the song say? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace teaches you. If cigarettes killed my dad, I shouldn't take up smoking. And if Jesus Christ tasted death for me, by grace, the Bible says, then that grace should make me want to resist the sin that killed my Savior. It teaches me. Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're supposed to live looking for two things, the resurrection and His appearing. They're, they're, they're together, but they're not the same. The blessed hope is not his coming. The blessed hope is the fact that you'll be changed and get this inheritance and get this new body that's part of your inheritance and he's going to be coming. That's what we're supposed to be looking for. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us that we might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. The coming of the Lord is supposed to make you live differently. Amen. See? It's supposed to make you zealous to do right. If Jesus were coming tomorrow, right. what would you do tonight? What would you have done today? What do you do when this is done? Amen. Think about it. You say, oh man, give me butterflies in my stomach. I got to get some stuff out of my closet. Okay, you know, but you got to do something different. Would you, would you go home on the way home and complain about how the kids are too loud in the back seat? <laughs> would you complain about how your wife didn't make the dinner the way you wanted to? Right? Would you do that if you knew the Lord was coming tomorrow? You probably wouldn't, right? Would you miss Bible study, right? If you, if you knew the Lord was coming tomorrow, right? Would you, would you go in there and grab some tracks if you knew the Lord? You make any phone calls tonight if you knew the Lord was coming tomorrow? You say, yeah, I think I would. Hey, the Lord's coming. Amen. Maybe not tomorrow, but he's coming, most likely in your lifetime. So get ready. You're supposed to live a little differently. Put a little zeal to it. You know, my daughter um, had a playoff game. You know what you do? You get a little zealous. Get a little excited. Get a little revved up. You do some things extra when you know you got a big game coming. So you got a big game coming. You got some big stuff coming to your life. Time to kick it up a notch. Time to kick it up a notch. Um, I don't know why that's foreign to Christians. You know, if you're a sports enthusiast, that makes total sense. You're any kind of you're any kind of competitive streak in you at all. You know, game on. This is it, man. They say great players are all about big moments. <laughs> they step up in big moments. Hey, you got a big moment coming. You're going to step up or you're going to wilter. You're going to fade into oblivion. Uh, Titus 2.15 says, watch this. Here's why I'm getting so hard on this. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. He says, that's what I'm commanding a pastor to preach. Get the, shake them up. Tell them to live right, do right, because the Lord is coming. He says, preach it with authority and don't let anybody look down on your preaching. Oh, that's Pat. You know, oh, that's that, you know, there he goes again. That loudmouth Italian, he had too much, you know, too much pepper on his pasta or something like that. Just, you know, he had too much something. He's full of something today. It'll pass. No, 
Don't despise the exhortation. Amen. Titus 3. Right? We're cruising right along here. We're almost done. Right? So the first chapter talked about that stewardship. The second one talked about the soundness, how the doctrine should match your deeds. And the third one, the key thought is the good works that your life should bring forth. <clears throat> That's the big idea down there. The book ends by being practical. It ends with an appeal to good works. Now, you were saved by faith Amen. without works. Amen? Amen. Amen. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So your, your salvation is by faith without works. The grace of life, that's where you start, right? But Ephesians 2.10 says that you were saved by faith unto good works. Amen. That's the goal of your life. That's your end, right? So you started with a gift, and you're supposed to grow into good works. You started by salvation by grace, unto good works. That was why God saved you in the first place. Not so you'd just be like, look, I'm saved. No, now you could bring forth fruit unto God. And in Titus 3.1, he says some things about good works in this chapter. He says several things. He says, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, <clears throat> to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. You know what you should be doing? You should be thinking about doing good works. You should be thinking about how can I bless my neighbors? How can I bless my husband? How can I bless my spouse? How can I bless my children? How can I help my community? How can I help this church? What do they need? You should be looking for and being ready for good works and have a heart that's ready so when that opportunity arises and God says, boop, he says, oh, there's a need seen. That must be an assignment given, and Pastor Mel used to say. Pastor Mel used to say, a need seen is an assignment given. When you see you know, the guys coming in on Sunday mornings, trucking stuff in and something in you goes, well, I could get up a little early and come help. You know what that is? That's a good work you could do. When you see all these hymnals laying out on a Sunday afternoon on the, on the, on the chairs, you know, you're like, hmm, somebody should pick those up. Oh, I should do that. I could do that. You don't need a commission from me to do a good work for God. <laughs> you know, we got tracks in that bin back there. You say, oh, I could put these in cards. I could put these in letters. I could just put a fistful in my pocket and give them to people at the store when I check out at, you know, Wawa, whatever it is I go. You know, I feel like going there right now. You know, but guess what? That's a, go do it. <laughs> Be ready to every good work. You don't need a uh, battlefield commission. Guess what? You're in the army and you're shooting across that trench in World War I. Guess what? You see that, that German guy peek his head out there? You need to turn to your sergeant. Should I shoot him? Do I fire? You don't need a commission. You've got a battlefield commission. You've got a battlefield commission right now. God says you're saved. Go do some good works. Amen. Be ready to every good work. Look at chapter verse 8. This is a faithful saying. And now look, at the, look at the gravity of this. He's telling the pastor, And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God. Have you believed in God? Say amen. amen. Okay, here's what he wants you to tell them might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. He says, be ready. And as a Christian, you should keep doing good works. Don't just show up for OJ once a year. Come next week. Come the following week if you can. If you can, I know life. You know what I mean. But maintain good works. You're reading your Bible with your family? Don't stop after a week. Keep it going. Make it consistent. 
You know why? It's good for you and it's good for others. It's good and profitable unto men. They need to see your consistency. And verse number 14, he says, again, and let ours, meaning believers, and let ours, <clears throat> Paul holds himself to his own standard. He puts himself in the bucket. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses. Why? That they be not unfruitful. He says, you should be learning how to maintain good works. Why? So you bear fruit. Do you want to be fruitful? Got to maintain good works. Got to keep it going. Listen, if you want your life to make an impact, you must live a life of consistency. You show up to church once a year. Guess who thinks you're a Christian? Just you. <laughs> Nobody else is impressed. Right? You show up every week, your family starts taking notice. You pray one time, fantastic, congratulations. You, see, you start praying every day, you start changing people's lives and changing yourself. You read your Bible once through and then stop, guess what? You're not going to bear a lot of fruit, but you get from Genesis to Revelation, you turn it back over and start again, and your kids say, Daddy, you're reading it again? Yeah, I'm reading it again. You know what that is? That's going to bear fruit. You don't just put a seed in the ground and say, where's the fruit? Ah, it takes time, it takes consistency, it takes a maintaining and a maintenance to keep that fruit bearing. Matt Califano's starting to twitch. He's like, don't talk about anything related to grass yet. All right, it's coming, Matt, don't worry. All right, but consistency is key. Consistent life. You don't have to be a superstar. Right. You don't have to be a firecracker. You just got to be steady. Just be steady. Just be there. Just be where God wants you to be consistently. And guess what? Your life will be fruitful. The church is full of firecrackers. Somebody walks in and boom, boom, boom. They make a lot of noise. They get a lot of people's attention. And when that happens, I just sit back and say, that's good, all right. <coughs> Let's see if they're there in five years. Let's see if they're there next week. Let's see if they're there. You know how many people have come by? Oh, this is great. I'll be there next week. Uh-huh. Not writing that down. You know? you know? I'll see you on Sunday. Mm-hmm. God bless you. Hope so. I don't get too excited or too upset by what people say because you know what I'm looking for? Who's consistent? Who's steadfast, immovable, always abounding, you know, just quietly consistently just going about his or her thing for God. That's the one that God's noticing. That's the one that bears fruit. The book of Titus mentions good works four times because God is establishing something. Now, all this talk about works in Titus have made some people think that perhaps Paul did not write the book because such an emphasis on works and Paul is so much about faith, Romans, Galatians, but Titus 3.5 settles it. Titus 3.5 says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. There is a great reminder that salvation is by faith apart from works. Couldn't sound any more Pauline than that. So Paul definitely wrote this book. So you have, you have a standing, right? You have a standing, that's by faith, that's what God did for you, and you got a state that is by works, that's what you do for God. Got to get those two things down. Your standing is by faith. This is your heavenly, it's your heavenly position. Your heavenly position, Right? And you got a state that is your earthly practice, your earthly condition. 
right? You might, uh, you might be a doctor, perhaps, right? <clears throat> and you're, that doctor may have a license or a certificate. You walk into his or her office, and they got that certificate on the wall that declares doctor of so-and-so, graduate of so-and-so, certificate of, you know, blah, 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 right? That's like you're standing. That's God's diploma saying you're saved by grace through faith. That's your birth certificate. You're a child of God. You've got that standing, like you've got that license to practice law or be a doctor. You've got that credential. You've got that standing. Your name is written in some record somewhere that you belong in that category. But then you work at a practice day in and day out, right? That's your standing. That's your practice. That's heavenly. That's earthly. That's what God did for you and gave to you as a gift this is what you do by works down here. They call it a doctor's practice. The practice doesn't make him a doctor. The certificate made him a doctor. The practice is just where he works out who he is, where you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling down here. But your names are written in heaven. Rejoice. But down here, it's practice. Talk about practice, right? <laughs> All right? And the pastor has to preach that balance. Because what you're believing and knowing about yourself has got to be practical. This has got to affect this. Knowing about your standing and learning about who you are in Christ is supposed to affect what you do or don't do for Christ. There shouldn't be a disconnect. And and God wants a Christian. You say, I've just been saved a few years or I'm just getting back into church and the Bible. You know, what do I need to do? Nothing. Learn about who you are in Jesus Christ. The more you learn about your identity, right, Brian? The more you learn about your identity, the more things will change about your behavior. Your standing affects your state. And you got to preach that. That's going to make it practical. All right, let's go back to Titus 1. I'm going to finish with one big thought. One. Okay, yeah, definitely. Good timing here. One big thought. One big thought from the book of Titus. Our God is a God of order. That's the thought. Our God is a God of order, and you need to get your life in line with His order. If our God is a God of order, you need to get your life in His order. And the book dealt with God's ideal for a church. You know what God's ideal for a church is? Get God's order in the organization and the organism of your church. Get sound in your teaching, and you know what will happen? That church will bring forth good works. That's the outline of the book. Get the order right, the right authority, get things laid out right, get the teaching right, you know what you'll bring forth? Good works for a church. And what happens on the grand scale, the macro scale, will happen on your micro scale. It's also God's ideal for a Christian. If you love God's pattern, want to be that steward, get things in order in your life, get sound in your behavior, let your behavior and your holy living be a complement to your You know, your doctrine, you know what's going to happen? You're going to bear fruit in your life. You're going to bring forth good works. You're going to bless God and you're going to bless others. And he says right there in Titus 1.5, Hey, Titus, set things in order. He wanted the pastor, the preacher, to provoke people to get our lives in order. Set things in order. You know why? Because God's a God of order. It's not a free-for-all. I think church should be like this. And I think, no, no, no. What does the Bible say? The Bible lays out not only the goals, but also the means to achieve those goals. Our God is a God of order. And uh, in that order is a lot of liberty, but you know what he gave us? He gave us the pattern. It says in Titus, 
the pattern of good works. You know, when you make a dress, they follow a pattern. You build a building, you follow a pattern. There's a model, there's something, a scheme you're following, a schematic. Guess what? You follow the pattern, and you'll end up following God's order. And that's what God wants. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll close for the night. Thank you for being here tonight, for your attention. Heavenly Father, thank you for this night, for this day. Lord, you are God of order. If I said anything wrong, just take it away from remembrance. But Lord, I just pray some things that were said through your power and by your grace might stick in our hearts and make us better soldiers, better stewards, more sound in our teaching, and more fruitful in our living, Lord. Only you can accomplish that. Give us safety going home, rest tonight, and let us be prepared for another day tomorrow, should you give us it tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.